Ah, yes, you're listening to Life 101, where we live in faith every day. This is Line Upon Line, where we study God's Word line by line. And I'm your host, Pastor Adrian. Verses 9 and 10 says, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine? And then he answers, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, here a little and there a little. So if you're serious about your walk with God and you want to understand true doctrine, it's time to get your Bible and follow along as we study God's Word. It's time to be weaned from the milk. Get your Bible, tell a friend, tell your pastor about this study, and let's get into God's Word line upon line. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pause now just thanking you, Father, that in the midst of our busyness, we have focus. Uh, we have focus on these ancient words. We, have, we, we just thank you so much, God, that we, of all people, uh, have access to these prophecies. That in a world that is clearly uh, just going crazy, it's, it's, it's unraveling, uh, and, and people are confused. But we thank you, God, that we can be anchored by your word. And we just pray, Father, that each week as, as we dig into this prophet, uh, Isaiah, Uh, that you would deepen our understanding, uh, that you would deepen our conviction, uh, and that you would clarify for us uh, what is happening in the earth, what you are doing in the earth, and our role in your plan. We thank you, Father. Uh, we thank you so much for Jesus Christ. Uh, we thank you for his love for us. We thank you for his, his purpose and determination. Uh, and, and we just thank you, God, for our relationship uh, with him. We praise you, Lord. We thank you. We ask, Father, that you'll bless our study now in Jesus' most holy name. Let us uh, get into the Word right away so that we can have e enough time to uh, get into the Q&A uh, at the end. <clears throat> and we are continuing now in Isaiah chapter 50. We covered uh, chapter 49 last week. Again, I was on the road last week and managed to pre-record the message, uh, but we didn't have a, a Q&A session afterwards. So God willing, we'll do that uh, after today. So let's, uh, let's get into the study. <clears throat> we are, uh, just give me a second here. We are in uh, chapter 50 and uh, verse one. It says, he begins now, this chapter says, thus says the Lord, Where is the bill of your mother's divorce? He says, where, where is the bill of your mother's divorcement? <clears throat> so there's, there's been a, a divorce that has taken place, and, and God is asking 
uh, Israel, uh, where, where's this bill of, of divorce? <clears throat> and he says, whom I have put away. So he put their mother away. And he wants them to produce the bill of divorcement so that they can understand why she was put away. Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? So, so uh, the, I, I owe somebody something and I've sold you to pay off that debt. Which, which of the creditors is it that, that I have uh, sold you to? Then he, asks, then, then he answers and he says, Behold, for your iniquities have you sold yourselves. This is a real condemnation. God is saying you did this to yourselves. And the reason you were sold is because you are such wicked people. It's because of your iniquities that you've been sold. And for your transgressions is your mother put away. So, so the mother and the children, the whole family is full of transgression. And this is why God had to divorce them. Now, I want, as we're on this point of, of divorce, and we know that God hates divorce, but look at the law, and I just want to highlight something here in Deuteronomy 24. He says here, when a man has taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, so something has gone wrong, maybe he discovered something, whatever the case is, uh, she no longer uh, finds favor in his eyes, because he has found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand so that she understands why she's been put away. And this is, this is the law. And so God is following this law because he was married to Israel. And, and so he divorced Israel, and so he's given her a bill of divorcement according to the law. And send her out of his house. So Israel, when I say Israel, I mean the northern ten tribes. Uh, they were divorced. And then he goes on and he says this in the same passage in Deuteronomy. And when she is departed out of his house, she may go and be another man's wife. So their marriage is over. It's, it's completely uh, been, basically it's disannulled. It's, uh, it is no longer. It's, it's, it's ended. And so because that marriage is now completed, it's over, she can now go and marry another man. Now, if the latter husband hate her, so maybe there really is a problem with this woman, and the first man married her didn't realize, the second man marries her, and then he also realizes after the fact that there is her out of his house. And I'm just getting a, a bit of a message or a signal that my, my internet signal is very weak. Again, if you don't mind just uh, letting me know um, uh, if I'm still coming through clearly. And write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Or if the latter husband die, so either the second husband, he comes to realize you know, there's something wrong and he divorces her. Or if he dies and she becomes a widow, which uh, took her to be his wife. So in either case, the second marriage also ends. Listen to what God says. This is the God of the Bible. Her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. It is, there's just no way. God is very, very clear here that if you marry a woman and you divorce her, that marriage is over. She can now go and marry another man. If she marries that man and that man either dies, great. Okay, so still coming through good. 
Uh, so I see it might be skipping, but that's good. So uh, I'm just seeing the signal is just a little bit unstable, but that's great. Uh, so that man dies, um, or he divorces her, and so now she's free again to marry, uh, but she cannot go back and marry the first husband. God says her former husband, which sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife. After that, she is defiled. For that, that act of the woman being married, being divorced, marrying another man, um, and then being divorced, and then coming back, that's an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not cause the land to sin, which the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So God is just saying this is, this is uh, abominable behavior, and, and he cannot have it. So in, in Leviticus, speaking to the priests now, following the same law, they shall not take a wife that is a whore or profane, neither shall they take a woman put away from her husband, for he is holy unto his God. Now, why am I uh, emphasizing this? Why am I spending time on this? Well, look at, um, and again, we are in the West, are having to deal with uh, head-on, it's like a head-on collision here, we are having to deal with head-on uh, the growth in, in Canada, the fastest growing religion is Islam. And uh, it's certainly growing very fast in America as well. It wouldn't surprise me if it's the fastest growing religion in America as well. In fact, it's, it's said to be the fastest growing religion in the world. And I put religion in air quotes uh, because I would say forced religion compelled religion, or even better, it's really an ideology. It has a, a veneer of religion, but it's really a political ideology. But in any case, we're having to deal with this. Now, is it the same God? Well, let's see, uh, compare and contrast the God of the Bible with Allah and his law. So what does Islam teach about? And this is coming from uh, a website called thereligionofpeace.com. Thereligionofpeace.com, helpful website. Here, remarrying a divorced wife. What must a divorced Muslim wife do before her husband can take her back? According to the Quran, a woman who is divorced by her husband, which is easy for him to do, so the uh, way that a man divorces a woman in Islam is he just says, talak, talak, talak. So I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. He just has to say it three times and she's gone. That's how easy divorce is in Islam. Uh, and the God of the Bible hates divorce. But once he divorces her, he can only, she can only be taken back if she first marries another man and he divorces her. And when she marries that man, they have to consummate the marriage. They have to consummate the marriage. It's not just a, a symbolic gesture. So the Quran says here in Surah 2, Ayat 230, if a husband divorces his wife irrevocably, he cannot after that remarry her until after she has married another husband and he has divorced her. This is the exact opposite of the God of the Bible. Here in the Hadith in Bukhari, one of the most uh, authentic Hadith, uh, Bukhari 63, 190, Muhammad tells a woman that she cannot return to her first husband until she has sexual relations with another man. And uh, Abu Dawood also confirms this in 2192 and 2302. So here they have some notes on Islam. This is called Nikah Halala. If in a fit of anger, a man pronounces the triple talaq, repeating I divorce you three times to his wife, they are divorced under Islamic law. That's how vulnerable women are 
under Sharia. However, if the couple wishes to reconcile, perhaps for the sake of their children, they cannot do this until she first marries and divorces another man. This requirement is not symbolic. Muhammad was very clear that the interim marriage must be consummated. This command is utterly degrading to the woman who may have done nothing to merit, merit her husband's rage, yet must bear the brunt of his temper in the most humiliating way. This is certainly irrefutable evidence that sexism, sexism is deeply rooted in Quran. And so it goes on. And in fact, um, a lot of the imams make a lot of money uh, from this requirement of uh, having to remarry because what they do is they just make their services available. That if a man divorces a woman and he wants to remarry her, they will show up and they will, they will marry the woman, uh, have relations with her, and then divorce her so that the man can take her back. And you can imagine how that relationship is afterwards. It is completely uh, ruined. And so this is the God of the Quran. Uh, I'm going to pause for a second until the stream comes back. I just see that the stream is a little bit unstable. What I was saying there is that um, this is just ruinous to the marriage, that uh, if the man takes the woman back, he can no longer have respect for her. Uh, the marriage is ruined. And so let's just do some critical thinking here, that God who uses marriage as a metaphor for his relationship with his people and, and who honors marriage so deeply and hates divorce, could it possibly in any remote way be the same God? I'll leave that with you to, to consider. In Jeremiah, uh, here in 3 verse 8, so talking about the divorce of Israel, and again this relationship, this covenant relationship that God has with Israel is uh, likened to a marriage. He says, And I saw, this Jeremiah 3 8, when for all the causes whereby backsliding Israel committed adultery, I had put her away and given her a bill of divorce. Yet, so this is the northern tribes, they were divorced. This is the bill of divorce for her treachery. Remember, it's because of their sins, because of their iniquity, God had to divorce them. He says, uh, yet, where was that? Yet her treacherous sister Judah feared not. So this is now the southern tribe. Uh, they didn't fear. They saw that she was put away, uh, but went and played the harlot also. So they, they continued in iniquity, even though they saw the divorce of the northern tribes. And verse 10, And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah uh, had not turned unto me with her whole heart, but feignedly, says the Lord. And you know, this can be a problem. Uh, you know, we're looking at ancient Judah, but let's look at ourselves, the church, that we can see how God hates what's happening in the world. And it's so obvious, and we can look at that, and perhaps in the southern tribes, Judah, they looked at the hypocrisy and the iniquity of the northern tribes, Israel. And because they, contained, they continued in the south to have the proper rituals, to keep the holy days on the proper days, uh, perhaps they just looked down on the northern tribes, and they just thought, you know, we're righteous. And I could see how we can do that in the church as well that we worship on the right days, we, you know, we understand the proper doctrines, uh, and the, the world is full of iniquity. And so we can actually give God lip service, and we're, we're involved in ritual, rather than in a very deep and profound relationship with our Creator. And, and it's easy to fall into this uh, hypocrisy, because 
there's such wickedness all around us. And so I don't think necessarily that Judah was just 100% totally rebellious. I think there's probably some self-deception involved here and uh, some self-righteousness that they're, they're doing righteous acts, but their heart is not with God. And the righteous acts are deceiving them. And we in the church need to be very careful of this, that we can be doing righteous acts, but our heart is not with Jesus Christ. And our righteous acts are deceiving us. So they didn't turn with their whole heart. So they turned with their heart, but not their whole heart. But feignedly, says the Lord. Back to Isaiah 50. Therefore, when I came, was there no man? When I called, was there none to answer? Is my hand shortened at all that it cannot save? So, so God is trying to reconcile with his people, but there's nobody there to respond. And so he calls, and they can't answer. And he's saying, look, my hand, the, the, the fact that there's a disconnection between us, that we don't have a relationship, it's not because my hand is short and I can't reach you. I can reach you. So is my hand shortened at all? that it cannot redeem? The answer is no, he can redeem. Or have I no power to deliver? So if, if Israel or Judah finds themselves in trouble, is, is it too much trouble for God to intervene and save them? He says, look, behold, at my rebuke, I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a wilderness. Their fish stink because there is no water and die for thirst. So we should be very mindful of the first exodus. How, how this is the, the God of power. And when he went to redeem ancient Israel, uh, the, 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 the sea was not a problem. He just split it in two and provided dry, a, a dry land for Israel to actually walk over. So the, the problem is not with God's power. Uh, we, we need Israel, we need Judah to do some self-reflection here. The problem is not with the Creator. The problem is not with the Holy One of Israel. The problem is with Israel. The problem is with Judah. He goes on to say here, I clothe the heavens with blackness, so, and I make sackcloth their covering. So in other words, this is the power of God that he can turn the skies black. And we know he, he actually is going to do that. So we look back to something that he did in the past, and now we're looking forward to something he's going to do in the future. In Revelation 6, verse 12, he says, And I beheld... John says, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun, the sun, became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. This is the God we serve. This is the God that Israel and Judah serve. And God is saying, is there, you think there's a problem with me? The, the reason you're in trouble, is it because I cannot save you? Or do you need to do some self-reflection here? Maybe you should go and get that bill of divorcement. And, and see why that happened. And go and check, how is it that you fell into slavery? Uh, how, how did you fall into this? And, and with that self-reflection, come to a deep, wholehearted repentance. Verse 4, the Lord God has given me, and so suddenly now it shifts to the servant. And, and as we go along here, we're, we're learning more about this mysterious servant. And when John the Baptist came and, he, and he, he sent his disciples to Christ and said, are you the one or do we look for another? Christ didn't answer right away. He did the acts of the suffering servant. And then he sent the disciples back and said, go and tell John what you've seen. 
so that John could come back to the scroll of Isaiah and figure out this is the mysterious servant, that he has a job to do before he comes as the mighty Messiah. And so we're, we're learning more now about this servant, and now the servant is speaking. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak a word in season to him that is weary. So, so the, the, the people of God are weary. But within the people of God, there are two camps. There are the rebellious, and then there are those that really do have a heart for God. And, and, and they are weary. And the servant has this tongue of the learned to come and encourage them. That I may speak a word in season to him that is weary. He wakens morning by morning. He wakens my ear to hear as the learned. So he is coming with a special insight, a special wisdom that he can now encourage the weary. The Lord God has opened my ear. So we know that Israel's ears are closed. Israel's eyes are shut. Their heart is waxed fat. They, 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 God cannot have a relationship with them. But the servant's ear is opened to God. And he was not, and I was not rebellious, neither turned away my back, in contradistinction to the rest of Israel. Israel is rebellious, but the servant, the suffering servant, is not. He, he just deals with God authentically, wholeheartedly, with a commitment to do God's will. Now, it says, and, and I know uh, our brethren, the Jews, uh, they want to believe that the servant in Isaiah is always the nation of Israel. And we say, you're not reading your scriptures clearly. You're not reading your scriptures honestly. Yes, the servant of God is Jacob, but the servant, the suffering servant, is Christ. And everything that Christ is out, uh, that Isaiah is outlining here, Jesus Christ comes to earth to fulfill the suffering servant. And we see it very clearly here in verse 5. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And we read that in the Gospels. In Matthew here, 26, Then did they spit in his face. This is the suffering servant. And buffeted him, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. And in Mark 14, 65, And some began to spit on him, and to cover his face, and buffet him, and to say unto him, Prophesy! And the servants did strike him with the palms of their hands. Perfect fulfillment of the suffering servant that Isaiah prophesied. Back to Isaiah. For the Lord God will help me. So the suffering servant understood his relationship with God, understood that because he was righteous, God's hand was not shortened, that God would help him. The Lord God will help me. Therefore, he says, the Lord God will help me. Therefore, shall I not be confused? Shall I not be confounded? Because he's, he's confident of the Lord's help. Israel is not confident of the Lord's help. When God calls, he can't find anybody. But the suffering servant is confident. Therefore shall I not be confounded. Therefore have I set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. And, and this is really the call of the Christian, that we need to have this level of confidence in the Lord God, 
that he will help us, that if our heart is right with God, in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of all this hatred, and certainly I think it's very clear something strange is happening to our world. There, there is a demonic spirit that is covering the nations. And, you know, just this week, uh, a young Catholic boy was confronted by a, a social activist. And the, the young boy, a high school student, demonstrated tremendous self-control, a tremendous virtue, I would say. And yet he, he's the one that's being, uh, uh, his, his reputation has been ruined. Uh, there have been death threats against him. Uh, people have threatened to burn down the whole school with the students inside. Where does this kind of hatred come from? I think we know. And so there is a, a, a demonic spirit that has been released. And, and it's turning society on itself. And uh, when, when these, these, especially let's focus on America, because that is the superpower, when America turns on itself in this way, it is weakening itself. And it is making itself vulnerable to outside powers. And we know that because of these prophecies that have to do with Zion, with Jerusalem, with Judah, uh, that these prophecies cannot be fulfilled as long as America remain strong and in alliance with Israel. So what we expect, according to prophecy in America being one of the Israelite nations, chief Israelite nation, we expect it to collapse. And then Judah is exposed. And all these prophecies we see around what's going to happen specifically to Jerusalem, uh, the nations that surround Israel uh, will have free play. So something is happening in the world and we as Christians need to have the confidence of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord will help us. And because we know the Lord will help us, we have to set our face like flint. And just, just hard, just set. We know what we have to do. And Christ told us we cannot fear men. We cannot fear those around us. And, and look when Christ was on earth. In Luke 9.51, and this is in the archives if you study Luke chapter 9, uh, it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. This is the suffering servant fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah that he would set his face like flint. He goes on to say, He is near that justifies me. That is God. God is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? And we know that Paul made that same argument in Romans. It's God who justifies. Who can condemn us? He is near that justifies me. Who will contend with me? Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. The suffering servant is fearless. He's fearless. Who's my adversary? Let, let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God will help me. Okay, so I just understand that there's some, some trouble, um, but I'll just keep going. Usually the archive is, it doesn't have these hiccups, uh, so hopefully you're getting enough from the live broadcast, and uh, hopefully many of you do go back and view the archive afterwards. But uh, for the sake of the archive, I'll, I'll keep going here. Behold, the Lord God will help me. So again, very different from uh, Israel that they believe the Lord's hand is shortened. The suffering servant knows confidently that God will help him. Who is he that shall condemn me? Lo, they shall all wax old as a garment. The moth shall eat them up. So these are just human beings. And the suffering servant is not afraid of human beings. Again, I quoted Paul. If we go to Romans 8.32, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So there's a confidence here that we have 
in God's love for us, who, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? And it's really funny, even the elect will lay charges to each other. <laughs> God is saying, who's going to lay anything to the charge of God's elect? They're going to accuse us of all kinds. And specifically, the greatest sin that we can commit or, and that we will be uh, accused of is assigning partners to God. That when we say Jesus Christ is the Son of God, this will be considered the greatest. It's going to send people crazy. It's going to be considered the greatest of all sins. And we just have to declare the truth. Search the scriptures. The Son of God came to earth. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. And this is again an allusion to Isaiah 50. Who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So there's a confidence that Paul has here in God through Christ. And Christ had this same confidence. In fact, Paul is alluding to the confidence that the suffering servant displayed when he was on earth and that Isaiah prophesied he would have. Here in, uh, back to Isaiah 50, verse 10, who is among you that fears the Lord? So they're not all the same. There are the rebels, but there is among them a subset. It's, it's sort of like there's always the church within the church. Throughout history, there's always been a remnant that takes God seriously. And so today we have the broad church of God movement. Uh, and then within that broad church of move, God movement, within the various organizations, there really are the Holy Spirit-driven brethren who are faithful and doing all they can to get their heart right with God. And then there are those, this is just a ritual, just something we do, you know, once a week. Uh, same with Israel. There are those who are ritualistic, and then within that there's a remnant, like the Joseph and Marys, the Simeons, the uh, Zacharias and Elizabeths. Uh, so who is among you that fears the Lord? And Malachi 3.16, I believe it is, talks about this, that they who feared the Lord spoke often with each other in the midst of the wholesale rebellion of the nation. Who is among you that fears the Lord? that obeys the voice of his servant. So there's a recognition of the servant, and not just a recognition of the servant, but there's a recognition of the authority of the servant. The servant has authority. And there's a subset that obeys the voice of the servant, that walk in darkness and have no light. And so there's an acknowledgement that they're in darkness, and they're in, they're in trouble, but they also have no guidance. They, they've lost sight of the word of God. But they recognize the servant, and they need the light from the servant. Let that one, or those, those that remnant, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. So to stay upon his God is to rely on God. It's to wait on God. How do we do that? Well, we read his word and we believe his word, and we trust his word. It's not just a feeling. I, I feel like I trust God. This is not what stay upon God means. Stay upon God means we study his word, we know that he's faithful, it's impossible for him to lie. And so no matter what it looks like around us, we stay true to the word of God. And this is the message that we must bring to Israel and Judah. We must drive them back to their Bibles. 
and get them to see that every word of God is true and he has not forgotten them. It's them who have forgotten God, but we have to drive them back to the word of God and, and this understanding that they must wait upon God. He will renew their strength if they wait upon him. Behold, all you that kindle a fire. So there's a contrast now. There's those that, well, they're all in darkness, but there are those that are in darkness that acknowledge that they're in darkness and recognize the servant. And then there are those that are in darkness that recognize they're in darkness, but they try to kindle their own light. Rather than look to the servant and follow his light, they look to themselves and they kindle their own light and they reject the servant and they reject the authority of the servant. So now here's the message to them. Behold all you that kindle a fire, that surround yourselves about with sparks. Walk in the light of your fire. Go ahead. See how this is going to work out for you. Rather than wait upon, rather than search the word of God and believe the word of God, you go ahead and walk in the light of your fire and in the sparks that you have kindled. And you can get that sense of the temporariness of sparks. You know, sparks fly and they light up for a little bit and then they're gone. So you go ahead and walk in the sparks of your fire. This shall you have of my hand. So here's where, this is how this is going to end up for you. This you shall have of my hand. So God is very focused on his people. And, and he's saying, look, you need to understand why there's a break in our relationship. And those of you who do, and when I send this servant of redemption to you and you acknowledge him, great. Those of you who don't and you reject the servant that I send, here's how it's going to end up for you. This shall you have of my hand. You shall lie down in sorrow. And, you know, we wish that it wasn't that way, but that's how it's going to end up for you. You reject the word of God, God will reject you. And, and unfortunately for many in Israel and many in Judah, this is the way it's going to end up for them. And so we need to magnify our voice. We need to bring the Bible, the word of God back to them and show them just how solid God's word is. That we have to, first of all, have a right understanding of it. And then we need to communicate it and tell them very, very clearly to wait upon God and to stay upon his word. And those who reject God and want to just uh, uh, generate their own light, uh, temporary light, it's going to end. Up, it's not going to end up well. It's going to end in great, great sorrow. Uh, unfortunately, they cannot see what's around the corner. Through the Word of God, we can see what's around the corner, and we can warn them what's coming. Continuing in the next uh, short chapter, fifty-one, hearken to me, you that follow after righteousness. So there's this. Really, there's three parties here, or four parties. There's God. There's the servant, and then there's the faithful people of God, or the repentant people of God, and then there's the rebellious people of God. And, and so the servant actually is uh, creating this clear contrast as to who is who. When the servant appears, when the servant is revealed, when the servant is presented, then there are those that go and search the scriptures and realize this is the servant, and he has the authority of God. And then there are those who reject him. And so now he says, hearken to me, the subset, the remnant, the church within the church, today's language, but, you know, Israel within Israel. Hearken uh, to me, you that follow after righteousness, you that seek the Lord. Look unto the rock whence you are hewn, and to the hole of the pit whence you are digged. So the first chapter we opened was to go and look at the bill of divorcement and find out what happened. 
and why you're in the situation you're in. Now God is saying, look to the rock from which you were hewn, and the hole of the pit from whence you were digged. What is he talking about here? He tells us in the next verse. He's talking about Abraham. He says, look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone, and blessed him, and increased him. So what he's saying here to the faithful few is be confident. And the reason you can be confident, so first be repentant. And then once you're repentant and you acknowledge the servant, you can be confident in the word of God. And how can you be confident? By looking to the rock from whence you were hewn. All of this began with Abraham. And Abraham believed God. Abraham had God's word, and he believed it was impossible for God to lie, and he trusted God. And although he was advanced in years, and it seemed, and his wife was advanced in years, and it seemed ridiculous and impossible that God could actually fulfill his word to the point where Sarah laughed, God still fulfilled his word. He promised Abraham, and then he delivered his promise. And God wants the faithful to look to that and to realize no matter what it looks like, we walk by faith and not by sight. So no matter what it looks like, that does, that's irrelevant. It is irrelevant. What God is saying his hand is not shortened. He's the God that split the sea. And when it looked impossible, his people just walked over dry land. And now he's saying all of this began with Abraham. And when it looked impossible, he gave Abraham the heir, one child. And from that one child, the whole seed of Israel has sprung. Why? Because God is faithful to his word. And that's why we can wait upon his word. And that's why our message to Israel and to Judah is you must look to the word. And you, the, the, the trouble that you're in, and they don't, they don't understand the trouble they're in yet, but it's coming very fast. It's coming very, very fast. And our message to them in the midst of all this trouble is if you fear God, wait upon his word. He will fulfill it. So Abraham was a single man, and God called him and blessed him and increased him. And all of this began with him. He says, for the Lord, so the reason you're to look to the rock from whence you are hewn, and the miraculous nature of the beginning of this whole process, so that you can come to this conclusion. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. This is the miracle. This is what seems impossible. We're entering into... Uh, a chapter of the history of man where Zion will be devastated. Zion will be desolate. Zion will believe that they are forsaken and forgotten. And God is saying, it doesn't matter what it looks like. Wait upon the word of God. He shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places. So Zion is just going to be full of waste places. It's going to be desolate. It's going to be like could this possibly be the city of God? But God says, yes. You look to Abraham and see what I did with Abraham. I will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden. So that is what's coming. And this is the, the, the uh, vision that we have to have very clearly in order to communicate it clearly to Zion. That the Lord shall comfort Zion he will comfort all her waste places. And he will make her wilderness like Eden. So it, it, there's, a, there's a devastation. There is a devastation that is coming upon Zion. 
And we need to tell Jerusalem, be confident. God is going to make your wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. This is reality. This is the truth. It doesn't matter what it's going to appear uh, on the surface. Again, once America collapses uh, and then the nations are going to have uh, open, open season with Zion. And they're, they're, they are going to pretend that they want it, but at the same time they're going to completely make it desolate. They're going to show no respect for it whatsoever because they, don't, they are not instruments of God. They are instruments of the devil. And they're working against the plan of God. And yet our message to Zion is, you shall be comforted. And uh, this, this garden shall be, uh, or the Jerusalem shall be, like the garden of the Lord. And there's going to be singing, and there's going to be praise, and there's going to be thanksgiving. It's going to be wonderful. Hearken unto me, my people. So not hearken unto me, the whole world. Hearken unto me, my people. And give ear unto me, O my nation. Not all nations. My nation. The nation of God. Hearken unto me, my nation. And he says, For a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light of the people. So this is what God is going to do. My righteousness is near. My salvation is gone forth. So Isaiah is all about the salvation of God. And it's all about the servant coming with the good news, with the gospel, the good news of this salvation. And the reason it's such good news is because there is such horrendous news that precedes it. The good news is to the people of God. The nations will wail. It's bad news for the nations when God returns. But it's good news for his people. My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. So it's not going to return. This is the plan of God. And my arm shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on my arm shall they trust. So he's going to gather uh, his people from all four corners of the earth. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look upon the earth beneath. beneath. For the heavens shall vanish away like smoke, and the earth shall wax old like a garment. So this is reality. That as much as we look around at the creation around us, and it feels like it's going to be around forever, God is saying, no, the whole earth is going to be burned up. And there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. But God's word is certain. That will never go away. So, so look, look to God's word. He says, And they that dwell therein shall die in like manner. So everything is temporary. This whole state of affairs, it's all temporary. It's all fading away. And there's a new state of affairs coming. But my salvation shall be forever. So this is what we need to look to that there's a salvation process that God is in the midst of. And it's going to be forever. God is going to be the God of Israel forever. He's going to be known as the God of Jacob forever. Why? Because he's covenanted. He's covenanted. And he's not going to turn back on his word. And that's why we must look to Abraham. Because that covenant with Abraham is an everlasting covenant. And it has cascaded from Abraham down to Isaac, down to Jacob. And he will be known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever. And so he is now going about this process of salvation for his nation. His nation. 
but my salvation shall be forever and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Nobody can reverse this. This is, uh, Satan hates it and uh, his children hate it, but it can't be reversed. This is what's going to happen. And here in Luke 1 and verse 19, when Gabriel appeared, the real Gabriel, uh, he says, the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel. He identified himself. I'm Gabriel. It wasn't in the middle of the night, in the middle of the cave with no witnesses. He came and he told, I'm Gabriel. And, and, and he made it very clear who he is. That stands in the presence of God, that Gabriel. And I'm sent to speak unto you and to show you these good news, this, this good news or these glad tidings. So there's a consistency. There's a coherence. The Bible tells one story. And, and, and Gabriel came to show how the promises in the Old Testament are now going to be fulfilled. He didn't come with a completely strange, uh, just completely disconnected message that no one has ever heard before. He came very specific to show, I'm coming from the presence of God, and all of the promises that God made historically, he's going to fulfill every single one of them, because God is impossible for God to lie. So I've come to show you this, this, this good news. In verse 31, And behold, you shall conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name God saves. Yah saves. He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. He's the Son of God. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. So there's a promise uh, around the throne of David. And that's, a, that's an eternal promise. And God is not going to break it. So he's not just going to forget that promise, that, that, that covenant that he made with, with David. And he shall reign, what shall he reign over? He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. So in Isaiah, when he says, oh, my nation, listen to me, my nation. This is because this nation is his nation forever. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So the kingdom is the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom will be restored to Israel. The kingdom of God is the kingdom of Israel. Back to Isaiah. <clears throat> Hearken unto me, you that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear you not the reproach of men. Same thing that Christ said when he was on earth. Don't be afraid of men. It's the same God. Fear you not the reproach of men, neither be you afraid of their revilings. And their revilings are going to be intense. Uh, so we as Christians cannot fear them, and we need to tell the people of the, the nation of God, Israel and Judah, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid that God is going to fulfill everything that he says in his word. Here in Matthew, this is what God says to his people when he was on earth, Fear not them which kill the body, and are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in, in hell. So we need to be very, very clear here who we're, who we're serving. And just as the suffering servant came, and he's like, where are my adversaries? Let them come unto me. Uh, they're, they all just wax old like, a, like nothing. They're like grass. They'll fade away. Back to Isaiah. For the moth shall eat them up like a garment, and the worm shall eat them like wool. Like literally, this is what's going to happen. They're just going to go in the grave. Moth's going to eat them. They're just going to be eaten up by the worms. But my righteousness shall be forever. And, and his righteousness is to do what is right and to put the world right. So his plan, his counsel, uh, what he has in mind for his people on the earth, that is righteousness. And it will be forever. And nobody can stop it. But my righteousness shall be forever, and my salvation 
from generation to generation to generation. And so generations yet to come are going to be born and they're going to grow up and they're going to read the Word of God and they're going to realize how faithful God is. And again, there's people that are yet to be born or they're just being born now and they're going to be seduced by some other ideology. And it's going to cause them to fulfill all of the uh, adversarial roles that the Bible outlines and woe unto them. But we must be about our Father's business. Verse 9, awake, awake, put on strength. So, so there's a, a feeling of demoralization. There's a sense of loss. There's a sense of destitution. And somebody is saying to them, don't be taken up by what you see with your eyes. Your God is faithful. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in the ancient days, in the generations of old. Are you not it that has cut Rahab? And wounded the dragon and so there's the sense that God is mighty and he will act when he's ready he's just waiting for the right time and when he acts uh, Rahab I think is a symbolic of Egypt uh, that that oppressed uh, Israel and and he destroyed uh, Egypt and wounded the dragon are you not it which dried the sea again the first exodus the waters of the great deep and hath made the depths of the sea a way for the ransom to pass over. Uh, so there's this sense of the mighty power of God that his hand is not shortened. He can save. And so uh, Isaiah described him earlier as the God who hides himself from Jacob. And yet we know from the prophecies that he will reveal himself and he will act. And so there's a plea here now for God to act now. And there's a confidence that his hand is not shortened, that he is powerful, that he can pull off miraculous work. So it doesn't matter what things look like. It's the confidence in God's word. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return. So by the fact that it says they shall return, it tells you they'll be taken away. That the, that the people of God will be taken away. They'll be taken as slaves. Uh, and they'll be sent all over the four corners of the earth. And because of the mighty power of God, and that his hand is not shortened, therefore... The redeemed of the Lord shall return. Return where? Return to Zion. Therefore, the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. They're going to be singing. They're going to be full of such joy and gratitude despite what things look like and what they're going to look like. They shall return and come with singing unto Zion and everlasting joy. That's a big word. Uh, They're going to come with everlasting joy. And some people like to say that, you know, 1948, that's fulfilling this prophecy. They came, the Jews came back to Israel. I don't think they came back with everlasting joy. I, I think they've faced a lot of terrorism, uh, a lot of death, a lot of slaughter, and they've faced a lot of sorrow. So that can't be this. This is talking about a time when God brings them back. And when he brings them back, they come with singing and everlasting joy. Joy that never ends, because God is the God of Israel forever. And everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and mourning shall flee away. I, even I, am he that comforts you. Who are you that you should be afraid of man that shall die? So again, the same words that Christ spoke to his people when he was on earth. Don't be afraid of men that die. And the Son of Man, which shall be made as grass. And forget the Lord your Maker that has stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. So now he's going all the way back to creation. 
So for, first we're told to look to Abraham, we're told to look to the first Exodus, how he split the sea and his people walked over dry land. Now he's telling his people, go all the way back to creation. This is the God that you're dealing with. Don't, don't forget the Lord your maker that stretched forth the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth and has feared continually every day because of the fury of the oppressor as if he were ready to destroy. And where is the fury of the oppressor? So again, Judah uh, and Israel are facing tremendous oppression and there's going to come a point where that fury of the oppressor, it's gone. These are just men who can die. They're like grass. The captive exile hastens that he may be loosed and that he should not die in the pit nor that his bread should fail. But I am the Lord your God that divided the sea. Again, he reminds them how powerful, how miraculous his redemption was. But I am the Lord your God that divided the sea, whose waves roared. The Lord of hosts is his name. So he's constantly referred to as the Lord of hosts, the Holy One of Israel. He's, he's, he's a God of an army that is coming to save Israel. The Lord of hosts is his name. And I have put my words, and I have put my words in, the, in your mouth, speaking to the servant, and I have covered you in the shadow of my hand, that I may plant the heavens and lay the foundations of the earth, and say unto Zion, You are my people. So, so again, this, this is in the context of some sort of controversy, and, and, and a claim that you know uh, there's another God. And, and in serving this God, uh, they have to put Judah to death, and that pleases this God. And yet the God of the Bible, the God of the creation, the creator of the universe says, uh, I'm putting this servant in place so that Zion can understand truly they are my people. So Zion, you are my people, not, not the Gentiles, you are my people. Again, awake, awake, there's a sense of urgency. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem. So first the Lord is awake and he does what he does. And now Jerusalem, stand up. Don't, don't, be, don't be in a state of a posture of surrender. You know, right now they're strong, uh, but that strength is going to fade away, and uh, they're going to be in big trouble. And God is saying, look to the God of Abraham. That's who your strength is. And stop relying on, on these other nations. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, which has drunk at the hand of the Lord. So this is God's doing. This is his strange work. You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You deserve this. And so all of this development and this hatred, uh, God has allowed it because of your iniquities. And so you have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of his fury. You have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling and wrung them out. Like you have really, this is going to be horrible. It's, uh, it's, it's horrible. It's, there's, there's no words for it. Uh, but it was deserved. And God has to be faithful to his word. And they have to remain in this deaf, dumb state uh, until this, this is carried out. So that God can be faithful to his word. There is none to guide her among all the sons whom she has brought forth. So she's had many children, but nobody can guide her. She's trying to make her own light. Neither is there any that takes her by the hand of all the sons she has brought up. These two things are come unto you. Who shall be sorry for you? Desolation and destruction, and the famine and the sword. So this desolation and destruction has come upon them, and also famine comes with that, uh, and the sword. And in my opinion, this is the, going to be the sword of Islam. This is speaking of uh, beheading. This is what's become, come upon you.
desolation and destruction, the famine and the sword, by whom shall I comfort you? Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets. This is horrible. She has no defense now. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the heads of all the streets as a wild bull in a net. They are full of the fury of the Lord, the rebuke of your God. So you should have repented. You should have looked at the, the covenant agreement. You should have been faithful to the covenant, but you weren't, and you didn't. And so now you're drinking the cup of the fury of the, of, of, of the wrath of God. And somebody needs to be telling Zion and telling uh, Israel their sins and leading them to repentance. And so all of this is going to happen, and it's their own fault. So this strange reconfiguration of the world that we're witnessing, it's the Lord's work. It's the Lord's strange work. He's the one that is allowing all of this. These powerful nations that just look like they, nothing could ever stop their civilization, they're all collapsing, and they're collapsing from within. And God is allowing this. Therefore, hear now this, you afflicted and drunken, but not with wine. You're, you're drunk with the wrath of God. Thus says the Lord, thus says your Lord, the Lord, and your God that pleads the cause of his people. So he is, as much as he's punishing his people, he also pleads the cause of his, of his people. Behold, I have taken out of your hand the cup of trembling, even the dregs of the cup of my fury. You shall no more drink it again. <clears throat> so this is an intense period, but this is it. They're never going to have this again. And so God is going to take this cup away from his people. But I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you. This is the perfect uh, fulfillment of Deuteronomy chapter 30. That God, that's exactly what Moses foresaw. That this punishment that's going to come upon them, all these curses that come upon them, God will then lift these curses and put it on their enemies. But I will put it into them, that is this cup of fury, I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you. So be careful. Anybody who afflicts the people of God, be careful. I will put it into the hand of them that afflict you, which have said to your soul, bow down, surrender. And I think there is some sort of movement around the world called surrender. And it's forcing people to bow down and surrender. Uh, which have said to your soul, surrender, that we may go over. But you have laid your body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. So I think anciently they used to actually do this. Uh, conquered people would have to lie down in the street and, and the king would ride over them in his chariot to demonstrate just how subjugated they were. But certainly uh, this is also speaking symbolically of the surrender because they have not relied on God, how they have to surrender to the Gentile nations. And so that ends uh, Isaiah chapter uh, 51. And uh, sorry, 50 and 51. And uh, what I'll do now is um, again, if you have uh, if you have questions uh, or comments, um, please uh, feel free to um, go ahead and, and post those on the chat or on Facebook. And what I'm going to do is just see if I, my brothers are uh, on the line here and ready to go. So let me do that, and we'll just uh, we do want to start with the um, Daniel 12 question. But um, also any other um, questions that you might have, we'll do that. Uh, let's just see here.
It's uh, Murray here. It's uh, good yeah. to have uh, Bill join us. I know we, uh, we've been working hard at uh, getting the technology right to have this after yes. that study Q&A, so it's uh, good to have Bill join us. Thanks for joining us, Bill. Yes, Bill. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to uh, this program. It's uh, a real pleasure and a delight to uh, be here uh, uh, on behalf of all of us to uh, participate in this uh, question and answer. Great. Okay, and, and I'm getting uh, feedback, uh, Bill and Murray, that you guys are coming in loud and clear. So that's fantastic. Um, so, uh, and, and Bill, I, I thought of you because uh, not last week, but the week before, uh, somebody raised the question around uh, timing of uh, duration of prophecy. Uh, you know, how long will it take for these prophecies to be fulfilled? And uh, Murray and I said, you know, we didn't see any um, specific prophecies around duration. But uh, at the same time, uh, someone, I think it was Christy, raised a question around uh, the book of Daniel, uh, and she quoted uh, specifically Daniel 12, that had to do with um, the you know, 1260 days, 1290 days, 1335 days, and just wondered if we had any uh, thought or insight on that. And I know that you have, uh, you're doing a deep dive into the book of Daniel. I know you're planning to release that study sometime in the near future, but I thought you might want to uh, join us and just comment a bit uh, on that. And I know Murray has been looking into this as well. So I just thought if the three of us chat about this, uh, I think it would be helpful. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. Uh, and certainly uh, it is uh, a great opportunity to be here on the program. Uh, before I get started and, and even address that, Adrian, I just wanted to uh, mention uh, and thank you very much for your consistent commitment uh, that you've shown to do this weekly Bible study because I know that it does take a lot of time and sacrifice and uh, it's certainly uh, from the standpoint of uh, you making that effort and express dedication. I just want to express uh, our deep appreciation for all your efforts and, and uh, time that uh, you've devoted to this. I really, really uh, deeply appreciate it. I really appreciate yeah, that. And sorry, just, just, just before you go, uh, just before you go there, uh, Bill. So I really appreciate your, your words there, and also just want to commend my brother Murray. Uh, many hands make light work, and, and he's here every week with me, and and uh, kind of spearheading this as well. So appreciate you, brother Murray. Also, Bill, maybe just before you jump into Daniel, some people. Uh, maybe on the study here that don't know you. I don't want to assume that everybody is in the, in the CGI and just knows uh, you, you know your background and your uh, your, your credentials. Maybe you can just take a moment and introduce yourself, and then and then tell us about your thoughts on Daniel. Uh, well, uh, those those who may want to get to know me, uh, there's a bio a bio at cgimedina.org. Uh, that goes into a lot of detail with regards to my background and, and just what I'm doing presently. Uh, but primarily, uh, I, I've been uh, a minister of the CGI for uh, quite a few years, ordained in 1986, primarily a producer and director along with a good group of uh, folks, my wife and Jeff Reed and others, uh, putting together primarily our flagship program, The Armor of God, which you are helping out as well as one of the commentators, one of four commentators, that we have on the program, and uh, also uh, involved in publishing and writing articles and so forth for the Church of God, and operate as a regional coordinator for some of the uh, areas here that the Church of God International serves in terms of field congregations. So uh, that's a little bit of my background. Those that may be interested in finding out more about me can, as I said, go to that uh, cgimedina.org site, hit on minister, 
and there's a bio, a little bio there that uh, goes into more and, and, and let me just jump in and say Medina is spelled M-E-D-I-N-A, C-G-I Medina.org, M-E-D-I-N-A. That is correct, right. Yes, yeah, so okay, well, yeah. I was about to uh, mention the book of Daniel, as I think all of us know, is a clearly um, a historicist book as well as a futurist um, book. I, I like to call it uh, a historicist book with uh, futurist uh, appeal and futurist uh, features. It has uh, some very compelling historical revelations, uh, needless to say, and also some very captivating and I believe intriguing, very exciting uh, descriptions of future events that have yet to come upon us. And some of the things that you were alluding to in the Bible study I found uh, very interesting as well because the timeline that is set in Daniel does indeed operate as an underscore to some of the things that you were referencing and passing as you were going through uh, uh, Isaiah there and, and uh, mentioning and referring to end times and difficulties of the geopolitical conditions that we have today in the world and the fact of the United States and the West pretty much being on borrowed time. Uh, but at, at any rate, uh, this question regarding these days is a very compelling question in many respects because there there's a lot of debate that surrounds these particular uh, times. Uh, the preterists, they've got their points of view. The historicists have their points of view. And the futurists, they have uh, their, their points of view. And everybody seems to have, uh, in uh, certain regards, an interpretation that they're comfortable with and of which they advance. Even the Seventh-day Adventists have quite, a, quite an approach uh, to these particular times that are listed there, as you pointed out, the 1260 days the 1290 days and the 1330, uh, 1335 days. Um, I'm not sure how much time that we want to spend on this because really the chapter, chapter 12 is quite a, um, quite a detailed book with regards to what it's addressing because it's concluding essentially a prophecy that commenced in chapter 10. So chapters 10, 11, and 12 are pretty much tethered together that commences with a visitation of an angel that was in a, I guess you could say a, somewhat of a street fight with uh, some demons at, on his way to answering Daniel's prayer, but of which ultimately he begins to address this prophecy that he was commissioned to give to Daniel and opens it up in chapter 11, commencing with what you could say Alexander the Great, and then taking us through all the way to the end times, and as pointed out here in chapter 12 and in verse 1, uh, actually to the resurrection, where it says uh, there will be such a time of trouble as never since there was a nation, even to that same time, and this obviously is one of a type, there couldn't be uh, two types of this, this is right. never before, so this is a once-in-a-time uh, event at the end times, and we see that in verse 2, those that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And then it goes on in verse 3 and kind of concludes this portion of the prophecy that I mentioned commenced in chapter 10. But 
it concludes in the sense that it really gives no context with how all of it plays out. And the context comes with the timelines that follow. And so it picks up in verse 4 where it says, uh, Daniel, shut up the words in the book and uh, even to the time of the end. And I, and I want to mention something as I was passing through some of those uh, other uh, categories of in, uh, individuals that have particular interpretations of Daniel 12 to illustrate that there is no doubt, and yet the preterists will tell you that this book was fulfilled as of almost 200 years preceding the first coming of Jesus, mm-hmm. of all things. And that's amazing, because the fact of it is, I don't know what and how they ignore verse 4, where Daniel is said, or told, shut up the word, seal the book even to, to the, the time, time of the end. Of the end. Mm-hmm. So it's real clear that we're talking about, number one, of course, preceding that in verse 2, the resurrection of the dead, those who sleep, and of course, a time of trouble like never before. And as you pointed out, uh, Matthew, uh, there, 24, I think it was, I think you pointed that out, uh, where there's going to be a, a time, and if you didn't, obviously many of us know that there is going to be a time when no flesh could uh, survive. And that time is very corollary to this time. I mean, mm-hmm. they're the same times. Mm-hmm. So at any rate, Daniel's told, uh, in this case, to um, uh, shut up the book, and then he looks and he beholds two angels, one on each side of a riverbed. And they start talking to one another and uh, ask a question there in verse 6, where it says, uh, how long shall this uh, it be to the end of these wonders? And what wonders are we talking about? But the wonders that commenced in chapter 10 and 11 and all the way up through mm. 12, verse about 4. That's a really good point. And I think a lot, a lot of people read the scripture and just stay in chapter 12. You're saying we really need to go all the way back to 10 and read the whole thing in context. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely, because that's where it all begins. And uh, if I might mention uh, Rawlinson's, George Rawlinson's book written in the 19th century, uh, he was a 19th century scholar, wrote a book called The Manual of Ancient History. And he does a yeoman's job on chapter 11 in putting a lot of the historical value uh, and enlightening and illuminating much of uh, how that all worked and played out during the um, times commencing with Alexander the Great and then bringing us up to the latter days when two major players, the King of the North and the King of the South, face off and the King of the North invades the Holy Land, occupies Jerusalem, and essentially takes over Egypt and kind of begins to wrap around the the Mediterranean by taking Libya and so forth. But the point being, um, it all ends, of course, as we understand, in the greatest trouble the earth has ever seen and culminates in the resurrection. And that's a big quantum jump from 11, verse 45, to 12, 1 through 4. But then, as I say, you get the backstory of some timelines of this 1260 days, the uh, 1290 days, and the uh, 1335 days. And obviously, my, my point tonight that I just wanted to make clear to everybody, and I think it's pretty clear by virtue of the scriptures, is that these are end time timelines. 
yes. that apply to situations, conditions, circumstances, and events that have yet to come upon us. And we can make and debate perhaps, you know, certain years in implementing or applying the day for a year principle in uh, some of these numbers and claim that it spans over, you know, as the futurists would say, 1,260 years. But in the context of what we're talking about in chapter 12, it is no question that we're talking about real time in real days. And the and end in this time. regard, we're talking about a time when sacrifices will be stopped. Uh, some will debate that it is even sacrifices because the word sacrifice is inserted in chapter 12. But if you tether that to chapter 8 and in verse about 11 through 15, where you read the pre-type of Antiochus Epiphanes, who ran roughshod through Jerusalem there in uh, about 160-something B.C., and desecrated the temple and so forth, and was a pre-type of what we're reading about here later in chapter 12. It is clear that we're talking about a sacrificial sacrifice, a daily sacrifice, of which two sacrifices occurred per day, uh, that would be stopped. And these days, 1260 and 1290, uh, are obviously 30 days apart and represent uh, some events that, uh, you know, we could speculate about and talk about, but like the military, I don't think really many of us are going to know just exactly what they're inferring until we really begin to see some of this stuff play out. But I think it's clear in regards to the 1335, and I don't think there's a whole lot of debate here, especially in light of the language, where it says in verse 12, blessed is he that waits and comes to the 1,305, uh, 30, or 5 and 30 days. And obviously, we know that uh, those that will endure to the end are going to be saved. And I think this is a clear indication that that will give you a cup of coffee and a donut uh, with regards to my thinking about what I believe it to be. But the fact of it is it certainly implies that that 1335 is a mark that many of us ought to have as a target of accomplishing uh, in these latter days because there is some very, very important uh, element associated with it that would provide us with the word to be blessed to enter it. Very good. And I really appreciate your emphasis on the end time uh, because a lot of these commentaries uh, believe that it's historically fulfilled. Uh, and I think this is just so clear from what you've brought out here. It is clearly dealing with a time that is unprecedented. Um, I, I wonder, uh, Pastor Moore, if you had any thoughts or comments. Sure, yeah, I completely agree with uh, and appreciate Bill's uh, comments on that. Uh, definitely pointing to the end time. Uh, in some of my uh, research in, in going through this, I think, uh, I think you'd agree, but maybe I get both your feedback. And, and maybe uh, just talk a little bit louder, Murray. I think you're coming in clearly. Just a little louder would be great. Sure. Um, so again, just uh, wanting to tie this into Revelation 12 and Matthew 24, maybe get your feedback on uh, why he chose such a short period of time, 1290, 1335. Um, the commentaries kind of waffle, as Bill pointed out, some try to, to pinpoint things like specific judgment periods. Others refuse to touch it because it's, it's very vague in Scripture. But one thing that struck me 
if you tie the 1290 days into Matthew 24, it talks about the uh, abomination of desolation, uh, and then tie that into Revelation 12, verse 6, which basically comes to talks about the end of the 1260 days where the church is in the wilderness, and, and we won't we won't get into exactly what that means, but. The, the short period of time, the extra 30 days, and then the extra 45 days after that, um, I think I think really refers to, there's gonna be a very short window of time where it will be really, really rough on God's people, and in, including the abomination of desolation, which scripture does go into some detail, and we just need to be patient and faithful for a very short period of time, and blessed is he who waits to get to that 1335 days, and I think that ties into some of the other studies that we've done that we've done in Revelation and Luke and um, uh, Isaiah now, and uh, really the, the, the culmination of these end time events are going to be very very difficult. But we just got to be patient. It's mm-hmm. just a short tight window, right. uh, and that's part of the takeaway that I get from from going from 1260 to 1290 to 1335 days, and then tying that into the events that follow in Revelation 12. Um, where the, the uh, Satan then following the 1260 days after the two witnesses are are um, uh, are assassinated and then resurrected, uh, that you know the church becomes persecuted, the finalizing of the beast of the sea and the beast of the land, which we covered back in Revelation. It's just a tight window of time where we need to be faithful and and patient through the persecution. I just wanted to thoughts on that. Really, really good. Uh, I like that. Um, the other thing that I would just throw into the mix here, and maybe just as a question, um, your thoughts in terms of how this relates to Jeremiah's prophecy uh, of the 70 weeks, and then Christ came, and he his ministry was for three and a half years of the last week, and so there is that three and a half years left in that 70th week to bring an end to the, to the persecution. Um, thoughts or comments on that and how that sort of fits into the mix, but I really appreciate your comments there. Uh, Murray, on the focus on it, it's it's a short, it's intense, it's going to be brutal, but it's going to be short. Yeah, and I and I think to Murray's point, and we're told, you know, as as the birthing process, as we get closer to the birthing of the sons of God and the resurrection, like a woman in travail as she's coming to uh, to full fruition of her birthing process. Uh, it is going to ramp up. The, um, the birth uh, pangs, the uh, contractions are going to occur more violently, more mm-hmm. rapidly, and increased and uh, accelerated in a fashion that many of us, it's going to be mind-blowing and, and head-turning in many respects, you know. And, and to your question there, Adrian, uh, I've always felt that that lot of three and a half years or, uh, that are of that last week uh, certainly connects with, I believe, the latter half of that prophecy that Jesus uh, turned to when he said he was anointed to bring the gospel but stopped in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. Well, that three and a half years would be certainly very appropriately described as the latter half of that prophecy mm-hmm. portrays when he commences his ministry at the beginning of the millennium and begins to engage new legislation uh, such as the Feast of Tabernacles, organizing and bringing back those physical human beings that were in captivity of the of the Israelitish cultures to define the second exodus, 
which will be so much more grandiose than even the first Exodus, we're told in parts of Jeremiah and even Isaiah 11 and so forth, that, um, and especially Jeremiah 31, where these refugee types are coming out of the lands of the north, uh, Mm -hmm. beaten up and and, uh, crying, and and you get this picture of just these refugees being brought back, uh, herded like sheep, Mm -hmm. uh, physical beings, at the beginning of the millennium to uh, establish the physical nation of Israel that's going to become this shining city on the hill at the commencement of the millennium, of which I'm sure is all part of that first three and a half years of Christ's very intensified ministry and getting the millennium out of the box, so to speak. It's interesting, as you were talking, and also with uh, Murray's point earlier, um, I was just thinking, you know, a marathon, um, when, when these people are running the marathon, you know, the first part of the race is easy for everybody. It's the last half that's difficult, and, and it's particularly that, that last mile that is really a struggle. And so I wonder, you know, you've got the three and a half years. I, I just wonder when Christ says, blessed is he who endures until the end, that he'll be saved. You know, I wonder if it's that extra 30 days, that extra 45 days, when a lot of people will just give up. It's like, this has been three and a half years already. Um, and and yeah. that there's so much doubt that then kicks in because it extends beyond the expectation that the finish line is at three and a half years. It's actually there's an extra 75 days to endure. Well, we'll definitely, uh, I think to your point, weed out uh, those that are a bit um, premature in their resi- uh, resilience, you know, to hang in there and to continue to, to forge ahead. Yeah. It's certainly going to be a... God is vetting a, a very unique Gideon's army. Yeah, and this is, uh, this is no small thing that he wants to grant to us. And so we really have to demonstrate how much we hunger and thirst for it. And that really ties back into what, you, what we've been talking about here, about the, the specialness uh, of the group that is called the First Fruits. Yeah. And why why they are called and given such a, a, a place to help Christ usher in the rest of, of God's plan of salvation. And, and I think on that because point... Because of the, the endurance. Yeah, on that point, uh, Murray, uh, I'm, I'm a bit worried, and maybe worry is not the right word, but concerned that this calling is so profound. But I think that sometimes we're around it so much and, you know, we hear these sermons every week and I think it's easy to fall into this, sort of just take it all for granted and just not remember or realize how profound what it is we are a part of actually is. Yeah, I think that... Oh, go ahead, Bill. No, go ahead, Murray. I was just going to say, I think that that's uh, why we just need to keep teaching and preaching this um, the prophets uh, throughout, you know, you the the early prophets, the patriarchs, the the the, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the, the apostles. It's really the same message. They just have to keep harping on, and uh, I think that's just up to to the teachers and, and God's servants to just keep harping on this because as one generation passes and new ones come up, um, it's a message that we're just going to have to continue to teach and, and encourage and exhort and comfort. Uh, much like you spoke today about uh, the, the comforting of Israel, it's also the comforting of the first fruits and the comforting of those uh, who are uh, these called at once. Um, it, it drew to mind when you were talking about this that uh, you know Second Corinthians one talks about the God of all comfort, and uh, Paul in Second Thessalonians.
Orleans one talks about uh, being like a nursing mother who nurtures her children. Mm. I think it's just something we're going to have to continue to to not tire of as a group of teachers. Bill? And, and, and I think the key to what, what uh, we're addressing here and what you commenced there in uh, discussion uh, as far as uh, being apathetic uh, or allowing um, a certain Laodicean attitude uh, sneak into our personalities, it's important that each and every one of us as Christians finds the key to make God real to us. I mean, right. all of us have the responsibility of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and via that relationship with the Father, of course. And so with that being said, it becomes incumbent on all of us to find the methodology in our relationship with Christ, utilizing God's Holy Spirit, to engage what is certainly, I think, to be the um, greatest endeavor that all of us as human beings are challenged with, and mm-hmm. that is to have a real reality relationship, uh, having God real to us in, in whatever form or fashion that we personally uh, need to have, because we're all different people. My, my relationship with Christ is different than yours or anybody else, any you know, other Tom, Dick, or Harry. So it really is important that we make God real with ourselves, because if we can do that, if God is real to us, you know what? We'll be motivated to show respect to God. Exactly. We'll come to church looking like we're going to church. We'll do the things that are the right things, because we have this ingrained sense of responsibility that we don't represent ourselves, but that we're representing the very living God of the universe. That's a big responsibility as ambassadors when we walk on this planet impregnated with the Spirit and are responsible now to reflect that holy name and family legacy. So it's really important, I, I th- and I think, and here's my, I'll just end here, that if we can do that, if we can achieve that, we will accomplish what you said, um, Adrian, and avoid this lackadaisical approach and any worry or concern of missing the mark because it won't happen. Yeah, because exactly. we're in training and we love the sport we're in, if you know what I'm saying. We yeah. love the people we're with. We love the relationship we're nurturing. Yeah, and I think the other, the flip side of that, Bill, if we don't do what you're saying, then the Bible becomes this sort of academic book God becomes abstract, and then I think we begin to see our brethren as dispensable. And, and, and the, prophecy, exactly. yeah, the prophecy does say a time is coming when the, the reality of the fear will be so real that we won't think twice about betraying our brother, which is really betraying Christ. But I think the antidote to that is just what you've just brought out just now. Yeah, and that's, uh, well, I'll tell you what, what you just reminded us all about is uh, really a, just a stunning realization to even be able to wrap your mind around the fact that we could ever allow ourselves to get be- and become that way. But to the Scripture's point, it, it is possible because the Scripture's there. If, if God is no longer real to us, then it becomes the that only way correct. out. Yeah. yeah. Very good. Uh, Murray, final word before we wrap up. Yeah, no, uh, not much else other than to uh, just, it's interesting to see as we've progressed through these studies for a couple of years now, uh, that it's just the same message coming back. Uh, God has a consistent message from beginning to end, and um, it's uh, just great to see it come alive. And hopefully uh, those who are, are um, 
finding value in this study and, and seeing it come alive uh, are the ones that will be uh, encouraged to follow through and keep God real as we've just been talking about it and endure it to the end. Hopefully that uh, um, seeing the Bible come alive this way, hopefully it will make God real in that fashion. Amen to that. Uh, brothers, I just see it's past, uh, just past a bit nine o'clock here. Uh, why don't we end on that note, and uh, God willing, we'll be able to do this again uh, in the near future. But really, really appreciate your contributions tonight, and Bill, appreciate you jumping on and just giving us some insight into the prophecies in Daniel. And I know you are working on a thorough uh, Bible study that you'll release in the near future. Thanks for the opportunity, Adrian. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much, uh, Pastor Murray. Thanks, guys. Okay, God bless. Okay, God bless everybody. Have a good night, everyone. Yeah. God willing, we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.